Well, this morning we are in Jonah 1. Again, we have, I think, five more weeks, six more weeks, including this week, of, of, this, of this beautiful short book. It's really a playful book. Um, tons of wordplay and artistry when you get into it. Um, like the Lord hurled a wind, and then the next, the next phrase is that they hurled their stuff overboard because the sea was raging so much. There's that kind of playfulness all throughout the, uh, all throughout the book. Um, that's what, what C.S. Lewis, whom I mentioned like every other sermon, would call the kappa element um, or the atmosphere of this book is, is extremely playful. But it's also, as I said last week, it presents a, a very grave theme. A very grave theme, which is the disobedience of one of God's own prophets. The beginning of the book, which Austin did not read, is this. God said to one of his own prophets in Israel, here's my word, here's my command to you. Get up and go to Nineveh and preach against them for their sins because their evil has come up against me. So Jonah got up and went the other way. So that's where we find our text this morning. He gets on a ship and goes west, whereas Nineveh is east. So he directly disobeys God. He does not want to go to Nineveh. So, uh, and, and the book's about God's heart for these wicked Ninevites, God's heart for the nations, not just for Israel. But, so it kind of explodes, as someone else said in an email to me a couple weeks ago, it kind of explodes the, the um, misunderstanding that some of us might have, even in the back of our heads, that we perhaps haven't articulated. That the God of the Old Testament is, he's a, a parochial, provincial um, God who only loves a particular people. And the God of the New Testament um, is the God of the world. That's not true at all. Um, God, the God of creation, cares about the nations and always has and, and certainly always will. So we see that re- here in Jonah. Um, this playfulness, though, this playful tone plus serious subject, what does it convey? Um, well, I think that Jonah as satire, the book as a, as a satire in its genre, means that God has a sense of humor even amidst the gravest things that happen in life, even amidst his own children's disobedience. God, in a sense, has a real sense of humor about it all. It seems a bit irreverent, but then when we take a step back and remember God's a parent, he has a son, and he adopts us if we trust in Christ into himself as his own, very own children, adopted children with all the rights thereunto. Um, We realize that, you know, healthy parents behave this way. You discipline your kids because it's good for them, but even sometimes as you're disciplining them, like you look at each other and you can't help but laugh. I remember my sister telling us with their first child about, this happens to Robin and, and to me all the time, but my, my sister, who's a bit older, has older kids, their first child was in her high chair and something about a hot dog and she just had the hot dog wiener and she would, she was being told to, of course, keep it on her plate and babies love to throw stuff off the, and sometimes Suzanne will look at us and go, and sort of dare me, and she'll drop something, and we'll have to discipline her. But Lillian, I think, got the hot dog and kind of did that, and then just went and just threw it across the room, you know. And Susanna turned and just went, like, just was laughing, but couldn't couldn't show Lillian that she was laughing. So, and then had to spank, you know, spank Lillian or, or discipline her in some way. And so the idea that um, we have to learn these serious lessons, um, but God, even as He's disciplining us, sees how silly, ridiculous, and sinful we're being, but he also sees the humor in it all. So I think um, just a reminder that he's a loving parent is one of maybe the takeaways of this kappa element, the atmosphere of this book. And that should give us a lot of hope, especially if we feel right now like we're being disciplined by God, Um, that he's a loving parent and he sees the comedy in it all. Um, So this is an unpacking of its playfulness, but what about the artistry? There's incredible artistry in this seemingly really simple book. What does that suggest about this story? 
Well, it suggests what the plot line does. So God appoints a fish to swallow his disobedient uh, servant and thus save him. And he also commands that fish to vomit, to throw up Jonah onto the shore, thus to save him again and to recommission him. We'll get to that in chapter 3. Um, then he appoints a worm, same word is used that where he appoints the fish. He also appoints, same word, a worm at the end of the story to eat a plant that Jonah's, he's enjoying the shade of this plant too much. He doesn't care about what happens to Nineveh. He set himself up on a perch to watch Nineveh burn because he wants God to just rain hail and, and fire uh, and brimstone over the city. But he really loves this plant and he gets super upset when it dies. And so God appoints even that worm just as he appointed the whale. Um, to teach Jonah a lesson. Amidst our free choices, amidst our running from God's word and seeking to escape it in him, God is in complete control. Our disobedience doesn't throw him off. It displeases him, but it doesn't throw him off. He sends a storm, a fish to swallow, and then to vomit up Jonah, a worm to chew the plant that his child is enjoying too much, to teach him a lesson about his own self-centeredness. The literary artistry says this, everything is appointed. God rules over Israel, obedient and disobedient children, the sea, storms, whales, wind, worms, Assyrians, Nazis, ISIS, America, you, me, the children I keep, the children I lose, everything. Charles Spurgeon said that there is not a single maverick molecule in the universe not a single maverick molecule every speck that dances in the sunbeam every every fleck of foam that that sprays up against the iron hull of a ship is choreographed by god by the maker and the sustainer of everything he rules over it all and he cares he cares about his people and he cares about his enemies he cares about those who hate him thank god or else none of us would be sitting here he cares about cows, whom Tim Mackey, a scholar in a, that um, that animated sort of overview of Jonah that I sent to some of you, he says that even the cows repent in Nineveh. There's this massive repentance all the while Jonah's running. His own servant is running. He cares about cows and castor oil plants. He cares about you. He cares about me. So running from Jonah, running from God, excuse me, and soul sleep. Let's look at this first point here running from God and soul sleep. I've given you the context already that, that Austin didn't read, verses one through three. Jonah just runs from God's word. So God pursues his prophet. He lets him go, but he doesn't let him go that easy. Um, when you run from God, he will often hurl his wind against you and create a storm in your life. I... And that's an expression of his love, his ferocious love. I won't go into the details, not because I'm embarrassed to share them. You'll hear about them plenty in weeks and in, year, in months to come, but for sake of time. But I really ran from God for a distinct three to four year period from end of university all the way until in the end of my first year at law school. I was with the wrong woman. Uh, I had an idol of, of relationship and had to have that to be happy. And I sort of obeyed God in other areas that I chose, but kept my precious over in the corner. So God, when he was 
to use an Augustinian phrase, when he was sweeping the room clean in my life, he couldn't touch that, right? We have our little preciouses. I did that for four years or so, and I call it my four-year Midian. The, the Israelites did a circle in the desert for 40 years. He, I did one for four, and at the end of that circle, I kind of put my hands on my knees and breathed hard and went, okay, I've, I've made no progress. I, I surrender. And God in his graciousness was there to lead me on. But um, that was the, stir- the storm in my life that he hurled. And I know that as, even as I speak, it's perhaps coming into your mind and heart. Well, you, you might have your own, your own storm. You can, or it might be coming. I pray not. Um, but that's, that's God's love for us. And he, he lets us go, but not easily. He pursues us. The end of the verse, of verse 4 says this, the ship threatened to break up. When we run, again, same theme from God and his word, the ship of our lives threatens to break up. The older I get, the more I see this happen. I've seen it, like I said, a good deal in my life. Um, but it makes sense. I mean, if we fight against the God of the universe, the God whose word creates the, the moral fabric by which all things hold together, the God who by his very word holds everything together. If we run from that word, we're not in a good place. We're kicking against the goads, as Jesus told to Paul on the Damascus Road. Um, and sometimes it might not look like the disobedient are, their lives are falling apart. It might look like it pays to run from God. It pays to shake your fist in his face. It pays to live how you please. Well, there's a psalm about that, Psalm 73. And the psalmist says that very thing. Lord, why have I obeyed you? Look at the wicked. Look at, they're just having fun in the sun, you know, um, saving up the bucks, uh, living as they please, fat and happy, fat cats. What's the deal? Have I obeyed for nothing? All day long I get disciplined by you. Um, but then he says, then I stepped into your sanctuary and I saw their end, that you put them in a slippery place. And so it, we have to remember as Christians, and I forget this a lot, I don't live in light of eternity, but the fact is that this life is not all there is. And God has made us for eternity. And we can't just look at someone's life here and say, oh, well, they must, God must be smiling on them. What if, what, if, what if they have an easy life, but that easy life means that God is letting them do what they want and not pursuing them? And then they die in their sins. What's, what's their eternal life going to look like? Not pretty. So we can't forget that. Um, I have a good friend in Scotland, my best friend, who would always say, don't judge your insides against other people's outsides. And I think that's great because we tend to do that. We tend to judge other people's appearances and the way that they look. And everyone looks put together. We're all trying to save the appearances, to use a, an Owen Barfield phrase. He was a friend of C.S. Lewis. Um, we're all trying to save the appearances. But so many of us are dying on the inside. Um, to have peace and contentment with God, to have clear eyes made clear by the blood of Christ shed for us, kept clear by walking in obedience to his word. Nothing can buy that. So Jonah descends during this raging gale and he falls into a deep sleep, verse 5. This isn't just Jonah taking a hardcore nap. Um, There's a direct connection between Jonah fleeing from God and from his word and falling into a deep sleep, um, just sort of turning off the censors of his life. Um, There's a connection between running from God and soul sleep. Part of me, when I run from God, part of me shuts down. 
goes into hibernation mode. If, if I'm his, um, though alive, part of me freezes and falls into a deep sleep and is not alive, in a sense, acts as though it weren't. Um, and if I'm not in Christ and running from him, even if it doesn't look like I am, but I'm just choosing to live my own way, that's running from God. That's not admitting his authority and his dominion over your life. And the fact that he's come and offered his very son for you. Ignoring that is rebellion. Ignoring that, I think in our culture we think that ignoring, ignoring God and just kind of doing what I want is not bothersome to him. It's not offensive to him. But if you had given your own son as the only way to save your creation, whose fault it was that everything was screwed up and that they just ignored that even though they knew about it, wouldn't that, wouldn't that break your heart? Wouldn't that be offensive to you? Um, and so if you are not in Christ, um, you're, the Bible says you're, just, you're not only asleep, you're dead. But so many of us, can, we can have parts of ourselves that are, that are, that are asleep um, because we're running in, in that part from God. And um, Paul uses some of this language when he quotes from Isaiah the prophet when he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And maybe there's a part of your life that you know, even as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit's pushing on a part of your heart, and you know that part is, is a part that you haven't perhaps fully yielded to God. Um, you're down there in the, in the bottom of the ship, in the belly of the ship, sleeping as you try to run from God um, because you don't trust him with that part of your life. But I want, you to let, I want to let you know that you won't have peace until you give that to him and that he is trustworthy. He is. Um, and, you know, on the, on the other side of that coin, people, I'm sure you've heard, many of you have heard of people describe, and you've possibly experienced this with your conversion, perhaps, the first time you trusted in Christ and you came alive. Or sometimes our journey in being made more and more like Christ, the theologians call that sanctification. It's part of what God wins for us in Christ all at once. Yeah, that is not something we, we, we earn. It's something that won for us at the cross, but that works itself out over time. But sometimes our sanctification at points in our life can seem so extreme that it almost seems like a reawakening, like a new birth. And people will describe either their conversion or their sanctification journey at points as seeing colors, birds in the trees, uh, leaves on trees, hearing the bird song, watching a sunset, seeing, looking into someone's eyes as if they're doing it for the first time, like a blind man given sight. They've seen it all along, but the way that people describe uh, this state is as if they're coming awake or coming alive. Um, so the verse 6, the sailor comes down and he, and he says, why are you sleeping? Arise and call out to your God. These are the same two words that God speaks to Jonah in verse 2. Arise and call out against Nineveh. So it's, again, it's playful. It's, the literary artistry is really uh, intricate. Um, the lesson here, I think, is that Jonah is running from God's word, but God is speaking through this pagan sailor who doesn't even know him. God does that all the time. He's in control of everything. Um, he's waking Jonah from his slumber. A man who doesn't know God is instructing God's prophet, Jonah, on speaking to God. So God, I mean, he, he speaks, he can speak and does speak in all sorts of different ways, and to be attuned to that. And sometimes God just decides to wake us up. Um, and because we are all born dead in our sins and trespasses, he has to at some point, or else we would just stay dead. So 
he says, wake up, pray to your God if you have one, maybe we can figure out why this storm is happening. And they roll dice, which I don't have time to go into it, but it was an ancient Near Eastern way. The Israelites did it too, and it's actually sanctioned in scripture. The last time it's done is to choose an apostle who will replace Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and hanged himself. It's the last time it's done in the scriptures in Acts chapter 1. Um, but they roll the dice to see what's up. Who, who are the dice going to fall on? What are they going to tell us about why we're in this pickle? And there's actually a, a proverb, Proverbs 16, I think it's 33, that says the, you know, the die are cast, but every decision of the die, every roll. I can cast the die with my own hand, but every roll of the die is determined by God. So the die fall on Jonah, and uh, and, and they get and they say, "Okay, what's what's up? What's the gig? Who do you worship? What's the deal here? Are you?" And um, the balls, the proverbial balls, on the tee, as it were. All Jonah has to do is swing to to preach the gospel, as it were, to preach the living and true God to these people, and and he does. Verse nine, he he tells them something that they probably don't want to hear. It's a really sobering verse. Even as Austin read it, I just felt like. I just felt like the boom was lowering. The Lord, he said, the Lord God of heaven, I fear, who made the sea and the dry land. Everything. He created everything. And they just go. And so so in, this, in this milieu, they would worship deities that, that had their, as they thought, had their domain in various parts of perhaps where they were, the God of the hills, the God of this part of, of the land, the God of the ocean, of this section of the ocean, um, the God of trees, but Jonah says, oh, I worship the God that made everything, the one God, and made the sea that's raging right now. And um, it's just this comic, serious comic moment where you, just, you can see them just going, you idiot, what? Why did you get on this boat? It raises the question, um, it's, it's just dumb. You know, again, like I said last week, to... To flee from the God that you know made the ocean on the ocean is dumb. It's not smart. It puts, Jonah puts himself in a precarious place knowingly, but when we flee from God, we do that. And the question it raises for me is, isn't all of our running from God just as dumb? Because we know that he's in control of every single fleck of foam. He's named Every star, he spoke and created all things. He controls our very hearts and the die that are cast. It's dumb. It just kind of puts in stark relief how my rebellion against God is not only futile, it's stupid. Uh, why do we run from his presence? We can't. Psalm 139, David says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to hell to get away from you, behold, you're there. If I dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, there your right hand lays hold of me. Well, Jonah has, had read his songbook, the Psalms, and he knew this, but still he fled. Sin makes you stupid. Paul says in Romans 1, 21 and 22, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So theologians call this the noetic effects of sin. Sin, we think in our enlightenment, post-enlightenment culture that we can, our minds can sort of stay exempt from sin. We can, we're still thinking beings regardless of how we live. But the script, that's not scriptural. The scriptures say, no, God, God is in control of all things. And as we run from him and as sin takes over our lives, um, it darkens every part of who we are, including our understanding. 
the fact is that we all do what Jonah does here. He's, he's the whipping boy. And I love that we have a book that shows how disobedient he was. It just, it just reinforces the truthfulness of the scriptures. They don't hold up, it doesn't hold up God's prophets as perfect. I mean, we have a whole book about how imperfect God's prophet was and how hateful and how uncaring toward the nations. But then how, through that, how loving and compassionate and ferociously persistent God is. So we all do what Jonah does here. We disobey God and we run from him while believing that he is both all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere at once, omnipresent. So this is just not smart, but we do it. So that's, um, that's that. Let's look at rebellious Jonah and the repentant pagans. Rebellious Jonah and the repentant pagans. So... Clearly, Jonah, in telling them who he worships and, and what he has done, because he's already told them, hey, I'm running from this God. He scares the pants off these guys. Um, the text literally says, the men feared with a great fear. I don't think that's conveyed in the ESV, if I remember. Um, this same word, great, is used twice already in this book. Nineveh is a great city, and God, God hurled a great storm on the boat. And then it says again, these men feared with a great fear. The word great recalls its first use, Nineveh. Um, and, and the fear of these sailors also maybe makes us cast forward and say, well, maybe Ninevites will react in the same way. Maybe as these men fear God and hear his word through Jonah and essentially worship him after they toss Jonah into the, into the, the drink, um, so might the Ninevites, if you would just go, Jonah. And in fact, that's how the book is set up. Chapter 1 and chapter 3, where the Ninevites actually repent once Jonah gets there, is recommissioned and goes and preaches, um, mirror each other, literarily. So that's one of the things that we're supposed to be thinking in this chapter. Um, but I just love this scene where they basically grab Jonah by the proverbial lapels and pull him across the table and say, you've done What? Um, I can't help but think of both Dumb and Dumber and uh, Tommy Boy, which kind of tells you sort of my dating as a human being and when I was a, a juvenile delinquent watching these movies. But uh, that bit in Tommy Boy where, um, as only Tommy can, as uh, David Spade is inside getting directions at a gas station, Tommy ends up like taking David's car that is like his prized possession and ripping the door off. <laughs> <laughs> and then he somehow puts it back on, and it's just hanging there, but David doesn't know it, and so he comes out, and he look, he sees the scratch, and he, and then he pulls the door open to get in, and the whole, the whole door just falls off, and Tommy goes, what'd you do? I feel like I, that flashes through my head, uh, shows you how pious I am, when I, or in Dumb and Dumber, when, toward the end of the movie, I think um, Jim Carrey grabs Harry, Lloyd Christmas grabs Harry, and he's like, do you realize what you've done? And then he takes off in that run. But I feel like that, again, it, that's the humor that is struck in this incredibly serious situation. Um, such tongue-in-cheek humor. And, and yet something very serious hap- is about to happen, right? Jonah says, look, I, I have the problem solver. Just chuck me in the sea. Um, now, at first blush, it seems when Jonah says, throw me in and all will be well, your lives will be saved, my life for yours, it seems like substitutionary atonement. It seems like a really selfless 
thing to do. But Tim Mackey, I mentioned him earlier, um, makes the observation that although it appears that Jonah is being heroic here, kill me and save yourselves, he may be, I stress may, be acting selfishly in the larger context of the book where what Jonah has done and where the commission he's been given and what he's fleeing from, right? Um, he will have gotten out of his commission, so he thinks. If, if I get thrown never elsewhere in the scriptures, when it's never a positive thing for something to swallow you up in the Hebrew Bible. Never. The land, the sea, especially the sea, which was a, a world of unknown and danger and peril um, and judgment even. I mean, what did, what did the Israelites pass through? Um, when they when they passed from slavery to freedom, but a sea, that but they walked through it on dry land. So the, to get tossed in the sea, to get eaten by a fish, all signs of judgment, um, not good. But and they mean death. They mean certain death. We know what happens, but forget that. At this point in Jonah's world, he's going. I've got a plan to continue to get out of this commission which I'm running from, to go preach to the Ninevites. So throw me in. So he's continuing to rebel, I think, um, and to get away from God's commission, but God is relentless. And through what would almost always mean certain death, saves his prophet. Saves his prophet by having him swallowed by the sea in a raging storm, the open sea. The shore is nowhere in sight. And then swallowed by a fish. Again, all signs of judgment. But they, he uses these means of death to save his man. And then recommissions him with the same word. Gives him another shot in chapter 3, which we'll get to. Um, but looking at, just thinking for a moment on Jonah's selfishness, if indeed he, he is here being selfish, and I, I think that there are lots of reasons to think that he is. Um, it seems unthinkable that he should be so selfish, but the more I think about it and try to compare my own situation, the more I think maybe it's not unthinkable. How much have I, of my life have I lived with this mentality? Follow me here. I'm, afraid, I'm not afraid to die because I'm secure in the love of God. I am his own in Jesus Christ who died for me. So far, so good. But how often have I passed up opportunities to share that security and love in Christ with those I am certain are dead in their sins and perishing? And the worst part is, stay with me, I don't even hate these people that I pass by. I don't even hate these people like Jonah had very good reason to hate the Assyrians, as we talked about last week, who would in 60 years come and wipe his people out, who were a ferocious military fierce, evil. That's what God says in the first two verses. This is an evil people and their evil has arisen to me and I care about it so I want you to go preach against them so they'll turn. He doesn't say all that but they're an evil people. Jonah has very good reason to hate these people. I don't have reason to hate really anyone that, that is around me right now that I come into contact with. I just don't care. I'm no better than Jonah and I have good reason to think that I'm far worse. Again, Jonah had good reason for hating his enemies, the Ninevites, that God called him to go preach to. They were a hateful, horrible people. I don't have reason for hating anyone. But in not proclaiming the only way of salvation to them, a way that I know and love, I am effectively hating people every day. Um, 
there's a, there's a scene, again, I'm trying to, as I hope you can tell, I'm trying to sort of contrast this very serious points with a bit of humor, just like the book does. But there's a scene in Seinfeld, um, which I, I wouldn't call myself a devotee, but I, I, sure, I sure watched my fair share of Seinfelds back in the day. There's a, there's a Seinfeld episode where Elaine is dating a guy. He's the hockey guy that paints his face. He's like, devils, you know. He's the super fan, and he freaks people out and, like, runs to the street screaming at cabs and um, has this real deep stentorian voice. And he, there's this ongoing thing about he's a Christian, and, if, and he doesn't ever really make an effort to share Christ with Elaine throughout the whole episode or series of episodes. And then at one point, there's this comic, heartbreaking, incisive, very Larry David-esque comment at the end where Elaine, Elaine says, hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. So you're telling me that you believe that I'm going to hell if things don't change. He's like, yeah. He just very dispassionately, yeah, that's right, that's right. And uh, it lands on her and she's like, how can you not do everything possible within your capacity to, to bring me to Christ, to, to make sure that I'm a Christian, that I come to Christ? Tell me about it. Every, with every breath, with every bit of who you are. How are you not, if you love me, if you care about me, if you're my boyfriend and you perhaps you have other ambitions to take me up, how are you, and, and they, they kind of leave it there. And um, it really hit home with me. And I think that's something of what I see in myself when I read this book. Um, so these pagans, verses 13 and 14, they're much better than Jonah. That's one of the points that the text makes is that they're very, they are better people they're acting far better than Jonah is acting. They care more about human life. They are desperate. Even though it's Jonah's fault that they're in this pickle and he's run from God and they're sinking because of his disobedience, they still do everything they can to not throw him in the ocean. Because to them, once they throw him in, he's dead. But they row and they row and they row and they plead with God. And then after they throw him in at his behest, they, they, they make sacrifices and say, God, we're so sorry. Don't let his blood be on our heads. So it goes out of its way to show that these pagans care far more for one life than Jonah does for an entire city of hundreds of thousands of people and cows. Um, while Jonah runs from the chance to see thousands saved, they go to every effort to make sure that he... This one man is saved. Um, we have, we did, we spent four years in Edinburgh and we had a lot of dear Iranian and Pakistani friends there um, and they were better than we. And they, they evidenced this in similar ways. Um, they were much better friends than most of our Christian friends, um, especially at a time of deep loss to us. Um, Muslims, all, all of them were Muslims. Uh, those of other races and faiths and worldviews are people God created fearfully and wonderfully. People he made to know him, people he has died for, people who will spend an eternity with God in love with him and others, or these are the two options for all of humanity, an eternity in hell, away from the maker of their souls, uh, being forever undone in conscious torment. And if you don't believe that one of these two things is is the eternal destiny of both Muslims and every human on earth, then you don't believe the Bible. And in that case, we need to talk. Um, and I mean that. I don't just mean you're not in trouble. I just mean that's a serious thing. It's the orthodox teaching of, historical orthodox teaching of scripture. 
these, these, these people from the nations, these Muslims, these, these Pakistanis and, and Iranians, um, they're not targets for us to evangelize, but people for us to know. Um, people with stories, just like us. People with families, just like us. Um, why, do, why do we know the true God and, and they don't? Much of that is situation and historical accident. Um, by accident, I don't mean chance. Uh, I mean situation. Many of them have never had the opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ like we have. They don't know the gospel. They may think they do, but most of them have never heard it before. No one's ever told them. Um, but they are in our backyard here in the Galleria area. And perhaps God has put you here and me here for such a time as this to share the love of God with them in Jesus Christ. Could it be? I, I think that uh, it could, and I think that it is. We, uh, Lauren Weiner has thankfully led me to, um, to HBU where we are going to start something that I don't believe they've ever done before, surprisingly, shockingly. They have about 100 international students every year, and those, those numbers will greatly increase in the next few years probably. Uh, and those international students that come in are far from home, obviously, and really a lot of them just crave um, time in a, in a relationship with a local here, time in a home, time around a family. We're going to start a partnership this fall with uh, HBU and with their international students, and we're going to start an adopt-a-student um, partnership. And so uh, I just think that is one wonderful opportunity, one, one tiny way for us to begin as a people of God to reach out to the nations that God has plopped us in the middle of. Um, these kind of relationships just can, have, can pay huge dividends, and besides, it's us getting to know them and sharing the love of Christ with them and loving them. And so um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be sort of announcing this and having sign-ups for this, but I want you to just think about um, this opportunity, and it, whether you're a single person or a family, it's, it's, it's for you. Um, and I told her we could, get, we could get some people that would say, yeah, I'd love, the commitment will be for a year, uh, minimum, starters, and, and to be with them at least once a month, pretty, pretty low bar. But to, to say, yeah, I'd like to adopt an internationalist, and I'd like to sign up for that. Um, so that's, that's happening. You know, we have a new, the Davids are multiplying out into a new parish uh, in the next few weeks, as Austin announced. And they're at this place called the Park at Voss, which is an apartment complex right there on Voss near Westheimer. And there are hundreds of Hindu and Muslim Indians and, and those from other places there. That's a huge opportunity for us. They'll be there for about six months before they move into their new house. And that is a huge, God has placed, he's appointed He's appointed them there. He's appointed us to be there for this time, for such a time as this. There's a mosque right across the street from them on Voss, Al-Hadi Mosque. Um, they are very open to getting to know us, and I want to be open to getting to know them. Um, Robin and I teach a course that we taught uh, with, with Christians to help them better reach out to Muslims. Um, in Edinburgh, we, we taught it. It's called Friendship First. We're going to be running it. It's a six-week course. It's, it's fun and easy and helpful. And so these are just some things, some ways that we can... Um, hook into this this love that God has, this heart that he has for the nations. So, um, finally, I just want to close with the point, life through death. We've looked at um, how God lets us run, but not easily. He pursues us. We've looked at rebellious Jonah and the repentant pagans, and I want to just close with life through death. 
again, as I said earlier, the very place that Jonah should have found death, in the sea, swallowed by the sea, and by a fish, he found life. God used the two things that normally kill, the open sea and a huge man-eating fish, to save Jonah. God uses even death to bring life. Imagine that. He makes of death a garden. How does he do it? How does God take the things in our life that ought to mean death for us and turn them into life? Because he sent someone, a man, a child who grew to be a man, about 750 years later, who would deserve life and get death instead. Jesus, his son. He deserves life and he got death for us in our place so that we could deserve death and get life, his life. There's an episode in the life of Christ, um, an account that's given of something that happened to him that's really, it really mirrors this account here of Jonah in our text. It's in all the synoptic gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But if we look at, you don't have to turn there, but Mark 4, starting in verse 35, just blipping through the similarities in this story. You're, most of you are going to be familiar with this story, but this account. Jesus, um, he's been ministering, he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and he gets onto a boat with his disciples, who, many of whom were fishermen, very familiar with the sea. He gets on a boat, and uh, he goes to sleep. He falls into a deep sleep in the stern of the boat on a pillow, Mark tells us, a little historical detail. And then a storm whips up on the Sea of Galilee, and it's raging such that these sailors, these fishermen who are very comfortable on the water are fearful for their lives. They think they're going to be submerged and swallowed. And so one of them comes down, just like the pagan sailor did with Jonah, and says, are you crazy? Get up. We're going to die. Don't you care? And, and what, is, what happens? Um, in both accounts, both in Jonah's account and in the account of Jesus here, the sea is stilled. In Jonah's case, it's because Jonah's chucked in. In Jesus' case, what happens? He gets up. He's not thrown in. He doesn't throw himself in. He doesn't throw one of the apostles in. Wouldn't that be funny? Um, he just says, silence. Mark actually says that he, he rebukes the wind and the sea. That's a word that's used elsewhere in everyday Greek during this time for rebuking your children. Be quiet. That's the kind of, of authority. That's how God's Jesus speaks to creation. That's the kind of authority he has over a storm that is threatening to kill everybody on board. He says, quiet. And the sea goes glass. And then... In both accounts, the sailors on board are struck with fear. Who is this person that rebukes creation? And it just stops. And of course, the answer for us, but they hadn't quite gotten there yet, is this man is the only creator that Jonah spoke about. The one who appointed a fish to swallow Jonah the one who pursued Jonah, the one who loved Jonah and the Assyrians. So here's my question again. How does Jonah get life where he should have gotten death? And how do we? Well, the answer, I think, is that Jesus has no problem in this episode, which I think gives us some insight, 
He has no problem stealing the sea. Again, total authority, just like a parent has authority over their child. I made you, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. You ever heard a mom say that? <laughs> no firmer word than that. Um, that's basically what Jesus says, right, to the storm. Silence! Easy. I said it earlier to those that are serving and don't hear the sermon, but one of my models, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, British, he's Welsh, but an English preacher, preached in England for 30 or so years in the middle of last century. He said, I say it with reverence, but sin is a problem even for God. The storm was easy for Jesus to still. But when Jesus even thought about what he had come to earth to do, which is to, to still the furious, stormy wrath of God Almighty, the just wrath against our sins, he shuddered. Um, in Luke 12, in Jesus just thinking about that coming storm that he's going to toss himself into, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This storm can't just be stilled with a rebuke. It takes the eternal, almighty soul of the only God being crushed for us. And because he became sin for us, and because he threw himself into the raging storm of God's wrath, we can know peace. I'm not talking about no problems in this life. Remember Psalm 73. Sometimes God will send storms into our life. We'll look at the life of Job in a few weeks. That's our next series. Job suffers because he's righteous. God cares about us. He, he brings trials into our lives to make us like Jesus. I will not become like Jesus in Grand Cayman on the beach, sucking down a margarita, as much as I would love to do that. I assure you, it's not going to make me more like Jesus. But Lord, I will do my very best if you send me there for a few weeks. <laughs> but trials often do. So I'm not talking about that kind of peace, just an easy life. That's not peace. I'm talking about peace, real peace with God being brought back into a soul-satisfying relationship where there's nothing between you and him. It's all the wrath has been taken care of by the go-between, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no more guilt. It's all taken care of. There's only remorse for sin, repentance, and a Savior who is ready to forgive because he's already done the work necessary for us. And he stands waiting, waiting to hear us pray, interceding for us, ruling for us. And we rule with him because of what he's done. Um, Jesus' last words, among his last words on the cross, were not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what? It is finished. There's nothing left for us to do once we have looked to Christ. Um, there's nothing for us left but grace and peace and a smiling face of God the Father. And it is a hard-won peace. Let's not forget that. Um, Jesus risked all 
to pay the price that God required for you. And he was glad to do it. And there was a smile on his face when he did it, or in his heart anyway. He was thinking of you on that cross. Will we not be willing to risk something for him so that others might know him in the same way? It's my prayer that Sojourn Galleria would be known around Houston as the church that loves the nations like God does, that sacrifices much to see them reached for Christ with his astounding love. Can we make that our prayer and our ambition and our work? You know, the nations aren't going to be here forever in this splice of town, but they are right now more perhaps than any other place, not only in the world now, but in history. The nations, just south of us, just, just south of us, just this side of us. Um, they won't be here forever, and we won't be here forever, but they're here now, and we're here now. And God has planted us here, as Austin said earlier. He's planted us here for such a time as this. Let's pray. God, forgive us our apathy, our selfishness, and our hatred, our hardness of heart. Forgive me. Give us your heart that you show us here in Jonah, your heart for the nations, your heart for individuals with stories, three-dimensional people who are every bit as complex as we are and who will live for eternity either with you or apart from you. Lord, change us, the Galleria, Houston, and the world. We pray it in the only name uh, that we can pray in, the name of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.